This is the Unnamed Financial Podcast, a crash course in financial literacy. If you feel left out of the markets, join me, Matt Gregory, and stock market expert Peter Raschuti from Tulane University as we navigate the basics of Wall Street. I was giving a talk once and a guy came up to me and he said, uh, this was years ago, he came up and he said, I really enjoyed your talk, but it really wasn't, it really didn't pertain to me because your talk was all about stocks and all my money's in mutual funds. And it was like, what do you think's in mutual funds? You know, it's <laughs> cheese. Do you think cheese is in there? No, it's, that's all it is. On today's episode, what are mutual funds and index funds? And this week in the markets, what about interest rates are making investors in Wall Street uneasy? And let's get into it. Joining us as always from what appears to be sunny New Orleans, Peter Raschuti. It's pretty nice. That was our winter, that one week. One week winter, huh? That must be nice. We've had several weeks of misery up here in D.C. But, you know, like you, we got the sun out today, which is helping me to shed some light on something that I've wondered about for a while. Peter, when I was a kid, my parents used to argue in the kitchen. They didn't argue often, but they did sometimes. And I remember specifically one time my mother and father going back and forth about taking money out of the Janus Mutual Fund. And I thought to myself, oh, that is, is Janus a person, a friend? What is a mutual fund? So that's the topic today. What is a mutual fund? And by extension, what is an index fund? Okay, let's start with the mutual fund side because that's the, that's the bigger picture. Um, the mutual fund is really the best thing Wall Street's ever come up with. They've come up with a lot of things that have not worked out. But this is, um, this is a great medium for people to invest in because most people think to be totally diversified, you need to have nine to 12 stocks that are totally in different industries. And most people can't do that on their own. I mean, that would be very expensive to buy positions in nine or 12 different companies and know what you're doing. But here, it's just a pool. Uh, you put your money in along with all these other investors and it's professionally managed um, for a fee. And so... Uh, this is the better way to go. And even if you think, oh, I don't own a mutual fund, you really do because more than likely your 401k is full. That's what you selected. They really don't give you an option of buying this stock or that stock. What they're going to do is give you options to buy different, different mutual funds. And there are a zillion mutual funds out there. So sometimes it's tough to uh, uh, pick from them. But I think the, the best part is the fact that you can do this uh, fairly easily uh, get the diversification you want, get the professional money management, and hopefully not pay too much in fees. There's two kinds of fees. Uh, one is what's called a, a load, and that means that you pay money going into a salesperson, and there's no need to buy those at all. I mean, that's uh, you can find your own mutual funds now. Um, and the other is a management fee that's paid uh, monthly or annually uh, to the people that manage the fund. When did these start to become sort of, um, I don't want to, you know, say a hot commodity, but when was it? We have always seen these evolutions of devices in the stock market. We'll get into bonds later on, at, not on this podcast, but another one. Um, when did someone realize you could make money, or at least this could be a service you could offer to consumers? Was this 60s, 70s, 80s? Yeah, I would say it's uh, in the 70s. Uh, they really proliferated. And uh, I'm originally from Boston, and Boston was always the uh, the place where all the mutual funds were. It was like Wellington and Putnam and Fidelity were all there. And they've been there forever. Sometimes I would be in the lobby of a, a company like Putnam and they'd have on the wall, you know, in business since 1642 or whatever. I always think, geez, did these guys come off the Mayflower? And, uh, <laughs> you know, you talk to the Indians about corn. I'm going to put some stocks together in a fund, you know? it's uh, So they've been around forever. And uh, 
And it's uh, really, it's a, what they've done since then has made so many funds. Uh, what we probably saw back then was just a general fund. And one of the things about a mutual fund that's different from a hedge fund, for instance, is a mutual fund, anybody can buy it. Um, and they, they, it's operated by what's called the prudent person rule, which means that it's managed in a way a prudent person would. So maybe there's a 200 stocks in there. They represent a lot of different businesses, a lot of different industries. Um, and they're picked according to which ones they think are going to go up. A hedge fund is uh, very different. It's uh, It looks similar, but it's a fund where you have to have a certain amount of sophistication and a certain amount of money to go in there. And they can do just wild things. That's what we talked about with GameStop and, and all of that. They can they can bet against a stock like you saw in GameStop by short selling. They they can borrow money to buy a stock. They can put the whole thing in one in a whole fund in one stock. But mutual funds are considered a um, a better balanced alternative, and uh, it's it's really worked out. There's just so many now, Matt. It's in it's incredible. It's uh, and they've been so specialized. Like you can buy uh, a mutual fund of just natural gas companies if you wanted to play that. Well, that's a lot better, really, when you think about it, than just buying one natural gas stock, where you might be right about the future of natural gas, but somehow this one company uh, just runs into its own problems. You can have one that's all airlines. You can have one that uh, the fund that um, my students uh, produce the produce the research for uh, is run by Hancock Bank. It's called the the Birken Road Fund, and ticker symbol is HHBUX. And the reason I bring it up isn't to sell a fund. It's that it's all uh, it's a fund entirely made up of small public companies in the uh, in the deep south. So you can you can divide them up, you know, by industry, by region, really whatever you want to do. Uh, you just mentioned fees. What are you looking for if you're someone who's going to invest in a mutual fund, right? Like, what are you looking for in terms of fees? What's a, a reasonable fee? What's a little unreasonable? Well, I think uh, just before we get to that, I'll mention the, oh, yeah. the mistake mistake a lot of people make is they get into mutual funds that let's say have had a very good track record over the last three years. And that becomes their decision-making, not really the, f the fees or anything like that. And the problem is, is that there's absolutely no correlation between past returns and future returns. So uh, in fact, there's actually a little bit of correlation being that the ones that have done the worst have done the best going forward. So, uh, which seems very disturbing, but, that, but that's really been the, uh, been the case. So um, fees become a, a big thing. One of the things you'll notice in a, in a mutual fund is the more difficult it is to manage the mutual fund, the higher the fees will generally be. They usually range from zero, uh, which will be an index fund. We'll talk about that in a second, but um, all the way to maybe 50 basis points or half a 1%. Uh, so if you have a company, you have a fund that's made up of all small companies in Asia. Well, that's going to take quite a bit of digging for these people to do to find that out. But if you have something that just uh, tracks the S&P 500, like an index fund, those are now free, which is, uh, it was, this was shocking. It was a, a several months ago and they just said, I'm not going to charge anything anymore. And uh, the way they do that, by the way, it's not like the mutual fund companies have you know, become a division of UNICEF or anything. They're, um, they, <laughs> what they do, it's, uh, it is kind of a giveaway. And what they do, they're hoping that you buy that fund and then buy some of their other funds that maybe do have a management fee. They just, you sort of get in the, uh, get in the family. But if it's difficult to manage, you're going to uh, pay, uh, pay quite a bit more. But, you know, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it isn't. And that there's a term that just makes you, your head spin, really. And that is um, 
some money managers are what's called their, um, they manage funds of funds, which is very funny. It means they don't own any individual stocks. They just own pieces of other mutual funds. So it sort of looks like one of those Russian, Russian nesting dolls after a while, you know, it's a, but it's, you know, it's actually a very good strategy. And then, and then we think of mutual funds, we always think of them as being all in stocks, but there's mutual funds for everything. There's mutual funds for bonds, of all bonds in them. There's mutual funds that have commodities in them. You should think of mutual funds as just the, the avenue, the, the professional management, the fee, and the, uh, the diversification uh, of those assets. And some, uh, some have all those things in it. You can get a mutual fund that maybe is, uh, it's, it's already d- uh, diversified amongst asset classes. So it, it, the, it, mutual fund as a name is just the structure. That's really yeah. all it is. It just means multiple funds to get, or, sorry, not multiple, right. it means multiple stocks or multiple bonds. Multiple, or multiple investments. Assets. In there, yeah, multiple right. investments. Okay, very cool. And then on the index funds that you mentioned earlier, Matt, they, um, these are, oh, these have really come into play about in the last 30 years. There was a guy named Jack Bogle and he started Vanguard and mm-hmm. Vanguard's a mutual fund company. And he noticed that over long periods of time, an outrageous percentage of uh, actively managed mutual funds actually underperformed the, the big index, the S&P 500, like 70% of them in the last decade have underperformed the index. And he said, well, why don't we just be the index? And that takes no effort at all. It's either, depending upon what how old you are, it's either run by algorithms or apes. But it's um, <laughs> those are the two. That does not take anything um, to to put together. I, I was going to ask you about the index funds. So um, when you're talking about the S and P, uh, just briefly, what is the S and P? Because it's uh, people say it, they hear it, but like just briefly to to dovetail that into like what an index fund is. What is the S and P? What does it keep track of? It keeps track of the largest 500 uh, companies in the world, and that's what it looks at. And they basically the largest versus the smallest. It's not what you and I would say. You know, you and I would, uh, if we went down the street and we asked people what's a big company, what's a small company, they would say a big company has a lot of employees or a lot of stores or a lot of revenues or high profits. But Wall Street doesn't look at it like that at all. Big versus small is simply the market capitalization of the company, and that is. The number of shares outstanding in the company, which you can easily get, times the stock price will give you the market capitalization. So those 500 are the largest 500 companies out there. And um, and that's the big index. Now, that's when people are talking about index, that's almost all what they're thinking about. But they forget that the concept of indexing can be used to measure other kind of indexes. Like uh, there's a small cap index, uh, and that's it's called the Russell 2000. And this, and you can just picture this visually like on a blackboard, I think it's the easiest way to think of this, is it, um, it takes the um, largest 3,000 companies by market capitalization, and it takes the first biggest thousand off the table. So in size, it's numbers 1,001 to 3,000. So it's those 2,000. And, um, and that's another whole subset of the market. And I think another way to diversify. So, uh, and that, no, nobody remembers that stuff. That's... Uh, that's very important. I was going to ask you. So you have your S and P, you have your um, mid cap, your small cap index funds. How, this might be just a basic question, but how does, um, let's say, a Vanguard, a Fidelity, how do they invest in an index fund? Do they invest in each individual company at a certain percentage so that it's able to mirror it, or how do you do that? That that's exactly what they do, and they have to uh, move things around. Uh, 
as the index changes, like one of the big things happened about two months ago and nothing this big has ever happened, which is Tesla was put into the S&P 500. Now, the reason it was delayed is it needs to have a couple of quarters of profitability. And of course, Tesla didn't have profits for a long, long time. So then it had to come in. Now, usually, <laughs> and this is why it's never been a problem. Usually something has fallen out of the uh, S&P 500, was bought out or whatever. And the next one, the 501st largest goes in. And of course, doesn't make much of an impact. It's just kind of for geeks like me to figure out what happened. But Tesla comes in and makes it as one of the top five largest companies in the index. And so they had to do it little by little. All of a sudden, you might want to think about it this way. Once Tesla got into the index, every single S&P index manager, and there's zillions of them, all had to own a big slug of Tesla. <laughs> Whether they loved Tesla, they hated it, thought it was ridiculous. And that was, that's like a zillion buyers. And so that's one reason the stock's done so well. It actually ran up uh, in anticipation of that because everybody knew the dates that was going to have to come in. And, um, but that's a very odd story. So, uh, but I, I think most people, they, they get diversification in the S&P 500, but truthfully, the way the market is right now, that index is the most expensive index out there. And uh, I would um, certainly could have some representation in there, but it's not the most attractive. Uh, the weird thing about the S&P 500 is that there's about five or six companies that uh, dominate the index. I would say the largest six companies, let's say Microsoft and Tesla and Facebook and Apple and Netflix and Google, I guess this is probably about seven or so, they control about 25% of the index because it's weighted according to that market capitalization. So number 500 could double or triple in a day and it would never show, you know, nobody would ever know about it. It has no impact on the average. So, um, and so I think people should look at a mid cap um, index fund, a small cap index fund, because they work differently. Like right now, um, I'll give you a good example the small cap stocks, and that's what we follow with the students, so we're pretty familiar with all that. Um, they, they have underperformed for the last three years. All anybody wanted to own was these large tech companies. And so because of the way it's structured, that sent the S&P up a lot over the last three years. And if you didn't own those five stocks, you were just kind of left for dead somewhere. And so were our companies. You know, we have a our mutual funds been open 20 years and it's outperformed 83% of all the, the nation's stock mutual funds. But for the last three years, did nothing. What has happened since Joe Biden became president with the small caps? Well, they, they're up about twice as much, more than twice as much as the S&P 500. So the little ones have outperformed the big ones. They have been kept down for about three years. I mean, you know, I go to cocktail parties, crawfish boils, and not a soul <laughs> wanted to talk about anything other than the S&P 500 index and those seven stocks. And I had lots of interesting stories to tell, but you know, they, uh, they would say, oh, let me freshen my drink, I'll be right back. And they would never come back. And, um, and so all of a sudden, since the first week of November, they've been on fire. And uh, it's all really, anyone wants to talk about is the, the FANG stocks, so oh, to speak. Yeah. Those five you that really, like you said, control the market. Absolutely. You try to meet meet girls with a small cap company that makes <laughs> widgets. It's just not going to work at the bar, really. It's something, you know. And yet, no. you know, that's what you got to look for. In fact, uh, you know, one of the things that Warren Buffett always says is that, you know, you've got to be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. And that was a good example. Uh, um, 
people were very fearful of owning anything other than those big tech stocks. And that's when he got greedy. That's when investors would need to get greedy. One thing you said, and I I don't want to misquote you, but we've talked about this before, is uh, when it comes to index funds or mutual funds, and compare that to like investing in stocks, how have index funds done compared to stocks over the last 40 years? Well, you know, of course, when you back up, you know, that's what uh, that's what's there. I, I Funny, I was given a talk once somewhere, I think it was Las Vegas, and I was given a talk once. And a guy came up to me and he said, uh, this was years ago, he came up and he said, I really enjoyed your talk, but it really wasn't, it really didn't pertain to me because your talk was all about stocks and all my money's in mutual funds. And it was like, what do you think's in mutual funds? You know, it's <laughs> cheese. Do you think cheese is in there? No, it's, that's all it is. So um, I think the, just the big difference for the way somebody needs to think about it is that the mutual funds giving you professional management and it's giving you a, a lot of diversification. And most people, if you look at the academic studies, show that diversica- diversification is probably one of the most valuable things you can you can have as a as an investor. And you can see it now. I mean, you see if you could have put all your money in Tesla in the 800s, and you know now it's down significantly or whatever. But if you had a diversified portfolio, um, is as as boring as it might seem, it's a better way to better way to go. Because one of the things people forget, Matt. Is, uh, and this is just basic math, but when you ha- you're trying to avoid getting clobbered at any one time, because let's say let's say you've got a stock at um, ten dollars a share, and it falls fifty percent to five dollars a share. Well, at five dollars, you really got to dig out of that hole. In fact, you need a hundred percent increase to get you back to where you were before. A move from five to ten is a hundred percent, and a move from ten to five is fifty percent. So, what diversification is trying to do is to stop you from getting clobbered by just having you know one or two things go wrong and you've said in the past i think um something about how index funds outperform the actual market or is that true or is that not how does that look absolutely they outperform about they don't outperform the market because they are in fact the market but Mm -hmm. what they do is they outperform about in the last 10 years about 70 percent of all active mutual funds and wow. money managers. So um, it's been a tough index to beat. In fact, even Warren Buffett, who, you know, is, I think, greatest, greatest guy, um, uh, he has had trouble beating the S&P 500. And by the way, Matt, the best experience I ever had academically is uh, in 2008, at the end of the world, um, that was, it was really- <laughs> That's what it looked like, yeah. It sure did. Uh, I brought uh, 27 of my students to Omaha, Nebraska to spend the day with Warren Buffett. And um, it was, and I thought he would cancel, it had been scheduled for months. And that's why I'm such a acolyte now. It's, um, he, he kept that meeting. He was, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. So I meet a lot of famous people and they're just the way you think that some of them are crummy, some of them are really nice, you know, whatever. but Buffett blew me away. He was so kind. He was so warm. He was so funny. He was so generous with his time. He took us all to lunch and made us drink cherry cokes uh because that's what he likes to drink and um and it was just um just incredible in fact he told um i guess i'll never forget this line i really think uh, i've got to go to the grave with this line is he um he uh one of the students asked him how bad is it on wall street these days and uh and buffett said uh it's terrible this is you know in november of 08 he says terrible i've never heard such sad stories i had an investment heard about an investment banker left his big office and in Manhattan, went to his 
his home in Long Island. He met his wife at the door and he said, oh, honey, uh, listen, um, we got to talk because I'm not going to get a bonus this year and I don't think I'm going to get it next year. And, uh, and we've, we're going to have to change some things around here and I don't even know how to bring it up, but darling, you're going to have to learn to cook. And, uh, and she said, uh, well, okay, but you're going to have to learn to make love so we can get rid of the gardener. <laughs> so, um, so it, um, so, that's why he's number one for, for me. And, uh, <laughs> That's a Warren Buffett saying this to you. Yes, I just uh, I I see students from that trip. It's been what twelve years, and I like I was doing an alumni event in Chicago, and it's like, do you remember the thing Warren Buffett said to? <laughs> How could you not think that? You know, so, but so, um, but yeah, tremendous investor that has trouble beating the S and P five hundred now. Yeah, that's fascinating. That um, you know, and everyone wants to think of themselves as like. It's probably the strangest thing about the late 20s, early 30s is everyone wants to be an expert on stocks. And even I've fallen prey to it of like, I got this tech stock AMD, it's doing XYZ and somebody else has one. And I had a roommate who was telling me that now the stock split for Facebook, so you know it's going to go through the roof. But you never hear anyone talking about index funds or mutual funds, but that's sort of the backbone of your 401k. There's one little story you always hear people talk about, and I don't know the numbers behind it, but it's probably true, is that so many active professional money managers have their own money in index funds, <laughs> which is, which is kind, of, kind of tells the real story. So when people are looking at like their 401k, because we've gone through this, um, and you're trying to decide you know, how you want to divvy up things, um, let's say you're young, late 20s, early 30s, or, or any of that stretch, where would you suggest like the percentage breakdown of S&P, index fund, um, mid cap, small cap, any of those? What do you think it looks um, like? Yeah, I would think that you would have, uh, you know, equal portions of an S&P, uh, a mid cap and a small cap. I think the part people leave out and they shouldn't leave out, and it usually is offered in their 401k, is some sort of uh, international mutual fund or global mutual fund. Um, that is, you know, uh, foreign stocks or, you know, stocks outside of the U.S. make up more than 50% of the, mar the global market. And, uh, and most people have nothing, either nothing in there or 5% involved internationally. And so not only are you not getting the diversification you deserve, um, but, you know, these companies and these countries are growing faster than the U.S. There's nothing wrong with the U.S. You know, it's, it's, it, I think it's a great market. It'll continue to be a great market. But the growth rates in these other places are much higher. And so if you can uh, take a portion of your portfolio and put it in there, um, that's a great deal. The other thing that's very important, whether you're buying mutual funds in a 401k or um, individually, one of the real keys is to reinvest the dividends. There's a little box you have to check and it takes very little time. You just need a pencil or a key. And, uh, and that means all the interest and dividends, instead of going out to you, get reinvested in the fund to buy more shares. And that's what we call dollar cost averaging, where all of a sudden, you, you don't own this, this mutual fund at a certain price. You own it at a lot of different prices. And over time, that should work well for you. Uh, also, it's great psychologically because if the market goes down, you think, oh, my gosh, the, the mutual funds in my fund are down. And, you know, all of a sudden, I'm uh, feeling bad about myself. Um, but uh, you can take uh, solace in the fact that all these new money that's being generated out of the fund is going and buying that fund at this new low price. So it's, you've only, you've got your own little hedge going there. And uh, in fact, flip, flip it around the other side, when the market's doing great, it's not quite as great because all that new money is going to be buying the mutual fund 
at higher share prices. So, mm -hmm. um, but it's a great way to sleep. You know, people talk about firm mattresses. This is much better, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're, we, and all of this, by the way, all these things can be done within your, you know, your web browser, your your app for Fidelity Ameritrade. Is that true? Absolutely. It's all on the big big screen there for you. The companies, I can't think of. They don't they don't hide anything. In fact, one of the things I like to do. This is if you're looking at individual stocks, is you can go to any mutual fund and type in the ticker symbol and then type in holdings. And it'll tell you what all what those folks are holding in those funds and what they're buying and what they're selling. So talk about kind of inside information. Uh, it's a great way to at least come up with some ideas. Uh, I think that's really helpful. And the other thing um, is all these tools that were not around when I started. I mean, they really, I, that's why I keep saying that the individual is much better equipped than they were uh, before. And really, I think better, better suited than institutional investors. You know, one, you don't hardly pay any fees anymore, but the other is this information that's around. There's a, um, I'll give you two that I, I just use all the time. Um, I bet you in the mutual fund and then holdings, you just Google it and you find out everything they own and what they're buying. But also um, a couple of other things is if, uh, there is a, there's a website called Open Insider. And Open Insider just tells you you can pull up any stock, um, actually it, any stock or just the market in general, and find out what the insiders of those in those companies are doing. Are they buying or selling the stock? Hmm. And that is about the greatest information you could ever have. It's fascinating that I guess this explains sort of the retail explosion because everything's at your fingertips to see what was yeah, once just yeah yeah it's um and you know that insider uh, not inside information but uh, insider buying and selling uh, a couple of things about that when you see insiders selling the stock that's not necessarily a bad a bad thing I mean they might you know be writing some giant tuition check or something like that or this some other poor part of life and, um, and so they might be selling off some stock. But when you see insiders buying the stock, that is a really positive sign because they know more than you do. And, uh, they're, and they're taking their own money, their own money. Now picture this, they already own a ton of that stock because they're directors and they, they, get, they get paid in stock. They're uh, these, the, the CEOs and all, and all the C-suite and the directors, they, get, they always are paid some cash, but a ton of stock. So they own tons and tons of stock. And if they are going out and buying more with their own cash, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, indicator in there. That's a, that's a big deal. They're, they, they, they're probably not as diversified as they should. And yet something's, a, a situation is occurring that they can't stop themselves. I don't, I need even more of that stock. Whereas, of course, their financial advisor is going, please stop. You just, <laughs> but, you know, and they're um, and that that's an, another big signal. And then the one we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Matt, that's great is if you go to um, yeah. shortsqueeze.com, you can look up any stock and see how many shares are short. Um, and that's that's another indicator. So if you're a public company, it's all out there. And um, that's one reason a lot of companies uh, stay private. You know, their, their stocks don't, they're not up for sale. They own by a few people because once you go public, you have to just, um, what they saw call sometimes is open kimono, which is, uh, you can just picture what that would look like. Is <laughs> they, um, they, uh, you've got to tell everything. And, uh, and, you know, most people don't want to give that kind of information to their competitors and such. So 
Um, or their neighbors. Yeah. They don't want to see the. Oh open right, kimono. right. That's uh, <laughs> yes, right with the kimono. Yeah, me. See, now we won't be able to get that metaphor out of our heads. No, you uh, can't. And it's never something pleasant when I see an open kimono no, in no. my head. <laughs> uh, so is there anything else you think is important to know about index funds or mutual funds? That's just something that a basic person should get to know about it. Uh, that, um, that first of all, they're, they're, um, when you buy uh, during the day, for most, most parts, uh, you, it'll, you'll get the closing price of that fund. And what the closing price is, is, you know, the last price of all those stocks in the um, in the index fund. So you can't. It's the. It would stop you from day trading. That would be that. Maybe maybe if you need sort of a drug to make you stop day trading because it doesn't execute till the end of the day. And uh, I think that's that's kind of uh, that's pretty positive. And then the part about reinvesting the dividends. Uh, you know when you see these big graphs, by the way, Matt, you see it all the time. Of what would a dollar be worth if you in invested it 30 years ago in the stock market or a particular stock and it's going up and all. One thing that people don't know is the assumption in that, that calculation and that beautiful graph is that all the dividends were reinvested. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, and if you take those out, the line is not nearly as sexy. It's a lot flatter. <laughs> so, um, so it's a good thing to do is to reinvest them. So I think the, the thing I'm taking away is that um, if you are a day trader with a, an addiction, index funds are your methadone. Oh yes, that would be, that would be the, uh, that would... <laughs> and now we have really come up with some incredible analogies here today. I, I don't know if Eric isn't talking more like this. <laughs> I think it's easier to understand. I, I know that when I watch like CNBC, I'm like, I'm very confused by all these things you're saying and it's not palatable for me. Just and Matt, I've got to really level with you. I think the business creates all this terminology to make it tough on everyone else. It's, I, you know, in a way I think every industry does, but it makes you more valuable if you know these things. And I once heard an interview with Charles Schwab and when he said it, I thought, I agreed with him completely. He said, I can teach you everything you need to know over lunch. And I thought, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, and you know, and, and, and like, I, I assume he was received threatening letters after saying that from, from people in the industry, because it's exactly right. Why don't we move on to what happened this week in the market? What did you notice? What caught your eye? What was something that, you know, just was significant? Well, you had companies announcing earnings uh, mm -hmm. these last two weeks. And then these next two weeks is when companies announce. So everybody's on pins and needles, uh, seeing what they're coming in. The earnings are coming in better than expected. So that's a real overall positive for the, uh, for the market. Now, one of the things is uh, there a lot of these numbers, of course, are compared to where they were a year ago. And of course, uh, a year ago, uh, we were still not in the pan pandemic yet. So they're pretty tough comparisons, but they're they're uh, they're better than the previous quarters, which is a, which is a very important. And um, and they've given some sense of optimism. The one story that's only getting quoted and discussed in inner circles and uh, by uh, stock nerds is the fact that um, interest rates are really going up now mm -hmm. it's only on a percentage basis but you know they're still very low historically uh but if you at the beginning of this year the yield on the 10-year treasury which is the one we everybody looks at was at one percent and i think today it's at 1.45 percent and that's you could say who cares but that's a 45 percent increase in those funds and what people are starting to get a little afraid of is that when interest rates go up too much uh, a couple of 
it's bad for the stock market and it's bad for two reasons. It's one is it's bad because all of a sudden bonds become a little more attractive and stocks, uh, people that own stocks are somewhat have a tendency to go maybe take part of it and put it in the bond market, sell those stocks and buy the bonds, which would lower the price of stocks. And the other is all the models that we work on in class and all the uh, what the professional money managers use. One of the big variables in it, in fact, I might even say the biggest variable is where are interest rates? And that'll determine what the valuation of these uh, these stocks ought to be. So people are starting to get a little bit anxious. Now, um, Chairman Powell came out a couple of days ago and keeps reiterating that he's not going to raise rates. And uh, of course, what's moving interest rates, It's it, this is really the key, is projected inflation. Mm -hmm. The higher inflation goes, the higher interest rates go. And so, uh, you know, we're in a very odd position right now because we want our cake and eat it too, and it's not going to work. And I don't want to see, we're doing really well with these. these They're great analogies. Yeah, it's just really terrific. Now I got to see if it can make it fit, you know, but it's, uh, but we want the economy to really get going. And most people think by the back half of this year and in the first half of next year, it's going to be powerful. There's all this pent up demand and all that, but we don't want interest rates to go up. And it's going to be tough to get an economy to go rip roaring without raising inflation. That would mm -hmm. be a, a tremendous balancing act. And the key number, by the way, is 2%. And it's used in two different areas. 2% is the level that the Fed wants inflation at. And if it goes above that, you know, I don't think they can make that promise again, that I'll never raise interest rates and I'll always help you. And I've always loved you stock investors and all that <laughs> stuff. It's um, They're going to have to do something. And, uh, and the other thing is that 2% is where... Uh, that's kind of everybody's threshold for when they're going to start worrying about it. Uh, to give an example of how far away we are, the average, uh, the 10-year treasury over long periods of time has averaged about four or 5%. So we're in, still in a very historic lows. But if you wanted to know, you know, people are always trying to figure out what's driving the stock market and what's driven the stock market over the last uh, four or five years. It's, it's really just one variable, and that is interest rates. Uh, low interest rates are great for the stocks. They, they really are. They're great for bonds. They're actually great for real estate. Um, and when interest rates start to rise, all of a sudden the valuations of those other assets start to come back. And that's what people are worried about. And the, the number I think that'll make people start to be nervous is when that 10-year treasury note yields of over 2%. We're at about 1.45% and rising. So that's, that's the number everybody's, uh, everybody's looking at. And the reason is, hmm. is that when interest rates are uh, very low, there aren't a lot of places to go. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, um, you're not going to get any kind of return in a, in a bond or a bond mutual fund or uh, even, uh, even a money market fund or a bank CD. So that's forced a lot of money into stocks, which, which raise, the price of, uh, raise the price of stocks. I think that about does it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll do it again next week. I was thinking next week, maybe we talk about bonds since it just came up. What did, that would be awesome. Let's, let's do that. So next week we'll touch on bonds and for now we'll say goodbye.